It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. You know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I, I don't sit yeah. in control room. They're answers that only can come from Victoria, I'm afraid, because that's not my job. But I ain't spending any time, because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Well, g'day, listeners, and welcome once again to The Two Jacks, where we uh, look at all matters Australian and then take it around the world. And joining me... In another part of the world is Hong Kong Jack. G'day, Jack. How are you today, mate? I'm excellent. No, uh, no public holidays today. Uh, no, no, no. Next oh, week. Gee, oh, you got one next week. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Very What's important. That, Steve ho- Smith's birthday. Yeah, no. Very important holiday next week. It's dragon boat racing. Oh, of course. Well, you've got to have a day off for that. It's very, very hard work. They tell me. Uh, oh. Actually, in the dragon boats, uh, giving it a bit uh, from the shoulders there. <clears throat> so uh, people there are entitled to have a day off for that. Yeah, it's become a it's a very corporate day here in large part. Um, uh, they get out to Stanley and um, and race around in the dragon boats and uh, various service companies, the big four, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, and banks have um, little marquees, and everyone gets on the singing syrup. There you go. I think we, we have the Dragon Boat Racers here too in Darling Harbour. Um, mm. I, I, I know the team from University of New South Wales is uh, uh, very active. Um, so we do a bit of it here, but we don't get the day off for it, Jack, but never mind. Oh, well, we can get a day off for anything here, mate. Now, the voice. We've been looking at the voice, and it seems like the um, uh, the, the constitutional recognition and the voice as an advocacy group to Parliament, to the executive, to the bureaucracy, is losing favour with Australian with Australian uh, voters so far. With uh, a news poll released uh, yesterday, as we record this, it's the sixth of June today. Uh, news poll released yesterday said that less than half of eligible Australians now say they will vote in favour of, of a referendum to enshrine a voice. Forty six percent say yes. 43% say no. That leaves um, 11% undecided. Uh, and I think we've talked about this. It's reasonable to expect, that in, certainly in the absence of a, of a solid uh, and memorable public um, uh, information campaign, um, that 11%, you would expect some of that at least to go to uh, you know, the majority of that to go to the no case. So on those numbers, Jack, uh, uh, that um, uh, on the news poll numbers, uh, the referendum would be defeated? Um, yes, probably. Uh, it, it's always the trend rather than actual numbers I'm looking at with these sort of things. But the trend is, has been and is going the wrong way for the yes. It is. Okay. There's no doubt about that. Um, and and there, there are reasons for that. Um, um, if people read my Substack, they would know some of them. I set this out um, some months ago. That um, I looked at what Michael Kirby had to say. Uh, he was a monarchist about the Republic referendum, and he set out a number of things where that re- referendum had failed. Um, and, and the Yes campaign has met almost all of those targets. So, you know, um, the process was wrong. They spent depending on who you listen to, six years or 10 years or 20 years consulting with 5% of the population to get agreement. But then once that agreement was reached, they've spent no time at all with the other 90% of the population. 
So that doesn't give time for this to become widely accepted. That's one of Kirby's points. Another point, he says, you can't have ambiguity. And however you dress this up, even within the yes vote, there are different views of how this will work and what role the High Court will play in it. If you have Megan Davis on one side um, and Anne Toomey on the other and Julian Appleby with Megan Davis, you get very different views about it. And ambiguity is a killer. People won't vote for what they're not sure is right. And the third thing I think they're doing wrong, um, uh, I've noticed every week now there are new people appearing on on ABC <coughs> um, uh, talk shows um, who... Um, quickly tell you that they are a proud, insert name of tribe, man or woman, um, and they they look like um, the uh, Guaylo accountant from next door. They're as pale as I am. Um, they helpfully wear um, uh, Aboriginal flag T-shirts so you know that they're um, Indigenous, and they tell you every 10 minutes that they're Indigenous. And these are exactly, in my view, the wrong people to use as advocates for a proposal that is meant to close the gap. Because for them, the gap has already been closed. Look, I accept largely what you're saying there, but but I, I really think it's a very very strange thing to be saying that people have pale skin. So not not all Indigenous people look like Albert Namajira. No, um, uh, Jack, um, I, I'm not sure that that's. I mean, people people are going to advocate, and they will have, uh, and they will have. I mean, there, there's a lot of nonsense being spoken about this that. That, that, that there's a sort of true Aboriginality and um, <clears throat> in Australia, and uh, and and that that really just belongs to a very small group of people who um, you know living in the Northern Territory in remote Australia. I mean, I, I, I just don't buy that at all. But what we certainly do have here is a a slip uh, in support. I think there is a great deal of support for Indigenous Australians in the community generally, but we have a failure to explain what's going on and why. And I think in that in that sphere, we've got uh, the No campaign uh, um, making some fairly outlandish statements, but that's because the Yes campaign has left itself wide open. So this nonsense that there will be constant high court challenges. This, you know, this this nonsense that there will be that that, that this is a, an establishment of elites from someone like Warren Mundine, who is a member of the elites. There's no doubt about that himself. So, you know, I, I, whenever I hear the word elites, my uh, my uh, used as a as an argument against one thing or another, my my uh, my eyes tend to rise tend to rise skyward, Jack. Well, I agree with you that the support for Aboriginality, for um, doing something about the Indigenous people in Australia is very high. And what that tells me is if you got the proposal right, this would swim through really easily and they haven't got the proposal right. Um, as to um, uh, Marcia Langton and Megan Davis and Gillian Appleby, they think there will be a fair bit of High Court litigation about this. They say that. So it's not just the no case saying that; it's half of the yes case saying that. Oh, that's well, what I'm talking about. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that there won't be uh, that there won't be claims that go to the high court, but but uh, to 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 paint this as a sort of endless amount endless amount of litigation uh, <clears throat> against the constitution. I think is a bit much, but yeah. um, um, uh, you know, and it is just one of the. I mean, that's because 
that the the yes campaign has left itself wide open. I should tell our listeners that that the question itself has now gone through the House. Um, I'm not sure where it is with the Senate, Jack. Whether it's it gone, it hasn't, it hasn't gone through yet. Once it once it passes the Senate and gets signed, then we've got sixty uh, days, pretty yeah. much. Yes, we? that's right. Yeah. Uh, so they will so, yeah, try and get the timing Senate, right. Yeah. Or or they could rethink this and say we could get something through uh, with a sixty percent or seventy percent majority if we get it right. But then you've got the you've got the problem of it being piecemeal. I, 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 it's a difficult one. They've got to kind of stare this down a little bit too. It, it, you know, we've seen um, Albanese in particular in support of uh, what Unipingu wanted, and I think he would consider it a betrayal to back away from that. Uh, and so I think they're sort of locked in very much. But as 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 I said before, it's gone through the House. It will go through the Senate in the next sitting, uh, and then uh, and then we've got about sixty days. So we are looking at a sort of September, October. Uh, October, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, September October referendum, and well, there and, and it won't you're be true. Absolutely football. right. The the yes campaign need to do a bit of work. They're advertising. Uh, I thought some of their early advertising was very good, and you probably don't see a lot of it, Jack, um, but um, it, it's very bland stuff to the Yes campaign, television advertising. Um, it, it, it tends to focus on Indigenous Australian voices, and I, and, and I think what really needs to happen is that middle Australia needs to be involved in those advertising campaigns. So what's this about? Why, why are we doing this? What's the outcome? What's the benefit? Those, the, those are the things that should be handled comprehensively in television advertising without getting into complexity. And, and, um, and really, I'm not seeing that at the moment. It's more of a sort of rah-rah the flag type advertising at the moment, and I think that's a mistake. Well, I don't think any campaign is going to save this at the moment. I might be wrong, um, but I think the problem is with the proposal, not with the campaign. All right. Now, big, big lawyer-type news, Jack. We've been waiting for this for a very, very long time. And, of course, last week the Ben Robert Smith verdict was handed down by Justice Anthony Basenko. Um, the judgment was uh, was made last week. Um, uh, some, of, um, some of that judgment has been withheld, but uh, a, a, a more of it was released yesterday. Um, it may well be that there are, I think, about 50 pages in the judgment that have uh, been determined to be um, uh, sort of classified, if you like, uh, and may never see the light of day. But uh, Anthony Basenko basically rolled up uh, uh, on what he on, on his judgment last week and said uh, that Ben Robert Smith was uh, not a reliable witness and indeed, uh, in the absence of corroboration, he could not accept his word on just about anything. Mm, um, yes. Let's start with the obvious. This is an excellent piece of journalism uh, put together by Nick McKenzie and Chris Masters. Nick may look like he's a bit, about 22 years of age, but he's a seasoned journalist who's been um, uh, active in all manner of investigations, including some of the criminal networks around uh, around Australia. So he's a fearless man. And, of course, Chris Masters, well, the wonderful Masters family, Jack, um, great contributors to uh, to uh, Australia's uh, culture. Um, and um, 
Uh, and of course, uh, Chris himself is uh, is a uh, long-standing journalist of the highest repute. So this is actual quality work from them. Let's start with that. Um, uh, the judgment itself is a victory too for the media, and I think all media organisations should view it that way. It is a really important judgment that these things um, are, you know, and we do know that Ben Robert Smith initiated the action, so it wasn't the media who did it, but uh, but uh, Basenko's judgment uh, is um, uh, uh, supportive of of investigative journalism. The next when, point when I want you to get make, it when you get it right. Well, Basenko uh, is a highly regarded federal court judge. Um, he's obviously uh, considered this long and, and loud. There there were witnesses from. Uh, from Afghanistan who presented, and, of course, there were, I think, some 22 SAS uh, members who also gave evidence, and um, and uh, all, all those two groups um, uh, showed considerable courage uh, in coming forward to tell their stories under oath. Um, uh, I, uh, when, when we wonder, is there anything wrong with the SAS, I think, I think we've got the, the answer... Um, uh, in the uh, in the negative um, after this process, because we have seen good people come forward, Jack. Not least of all, Andrew Hasty, Jack. I don't know if you saw his evidence. It's two years ago now, when when yeah, uh, the conservative uh, uh, liberal member for Canning uh, gave evidence uh, and and uh, was absolutely rock solid in his view that there was an element within the SASR uh, that. Um, stuck to this kind of warrior mythology and uh, engaged in processes like blooding new uh, new recruits or new combatants, uh, and that meant uh, killing civilians. Uh, I think, from memory, Hastie was an officer in uh, SAS. He was an observer in 2012. Uh, but he was part of the officer class rather, and the, and the and the warrior mentality seems to happen in the NCO classes. Yeah, and, and and look, we'll get to that in a little bit. But but Hasty was an observer. He was a captain in the SAS. He was a lieutenant, I think, um, uh, been through Duntroon, uh, and um, uh, he was an observer in 2012. Um, he saw Ben Roberts. Smith, this is um, on the day that Ali Jan was kicked off a cliff uh, and then summarily executed, as found by Justice Basenko, um, and summarily executed by a, 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 a soldier known only as Person 66 um, uh, in the company of Ben Robert Smith and directed by Ben Robert Smith to, uh, to kill Ali Jan after he'd been kicked off uh, the cliff and, and very se- severely wounded. When Ben Robert Smith walked past Hasty back at base, um, uh, excuse my language here, but this is a direct quote, uh, uh, he told Hasty, just a couple more dead cunts, mate. Um, when he was asked, and then he then during a debrief, um, Hasty developed a view that uh, Ben Robert Smith was lying his way through uh, the debrief, and that what had actually occurred, he said, was uh, was uh, 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 in another universe, an alternate universe that uh, that um, uh, Ben Robert Smith uh, his debrief uh, came from an alternate universe, um, Jack. What does it What does it mean for Ben Robert Smith? Just before we get on there, what what it doesn't mean for the media 
um, is that um, you, you can go hell for leather on an investigative journalism. It means when you get it right, then it's okay, go for it. But don't forget, you might have to spend $25 million proving that you're right. Um, what, what's it mean for Ben Robert Smith? It's a, I couldn't think of a worse disaster for him. Um, uh, he has um, he probably could have skated through life with about um, f- at least 40% of Australians thinking he hadn't done these things. Um, now almost everyone's going to think that he has done them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and because of the, the nature of the trial, a whole lot of evidence has, is now available to yes. the civil and military authorities that otherwise wouldn't have been, um, which makes me think um, a, um, a conviction um, uh, is certainly possible, put it that way. Um, uh, on, Become uh, more on possible. The, yeah, yeah. Become more possible. Look, the first thing uh, I read, uh, Nick McKenzie in the Sunday Age, I presume it was also in the Sun, Sun, Sunday Herald, um, but uh, in in that uh, in that piece that Nick wrote, uh, he talked of, and I'll quote here: "Federal police has evidence implicating Robert Smith in the intimidation of two other SAS soldiers. It, uh, uh, yeah. There is evidence that indicating that he had uh, sought to intimidate a number of SAS soldiers um, who were on the ground with him in Afghanistan." Uh, I'll go on to read in the defamation case against this masthead. Nick McKenzie writes, the soldiers were given the pseudonyms Person 18 and Person 6 and were revealed as potential witnesses. Uh, And these were, he said, efforts to intimidate the two witnesses that were first uncovered and reported in June 2018, although Robert Smith was not identified as a likely culprit in the report in June 2018. That would indicate to me, Jack, that criminal charges won't be far away, not in respect to the war crimes, or the alleged murders, and we call them alleged. Do we call them alleged, Jack? Now that the civil case has found them, well, they're oh, no I'm charges. Not sure. that's, a, that's a fairly pedantic point. Um, it's not going to make much difference. Uh, no, we, we, not we, the moment. We, we, we know that um, uh, Ben Robert Smith has already received a, a, a person of interest notice from the uh, military, um, which is a, a kind of a warning that. Uh, that you are likely to face some kind of military proceeding. So there will be two aspects to this. There will be military and perhaps civil. Yeah, but he's no longer, I mean, as I understand the jurisdictional issues, he's no longer a member of the military, so therefore he would be tried in the criminal courts in Australia and and that would be through federal charges. So he would presumably... If there was, if there was to be a murder charge or a number of murder charges levelled at him, uh, then that would be heard before the ACT Supreme Court. Is that correct? Uh, I'm not not sure where it goes to the ACT Supreme Court. It probably does. I suspect we won't have a new prosecutor by then. <laughs> we might too, too. We'll get to that in a minute. But it would seem to me from Nick's um, piece on uh, on Sunday that the first. Uh, raft of charges may well be around this intimidation of witnesses. Yes, um, uh, that would seem to me to to be the the first step in this. Uh, and wherever it, wherever it goes, Ben Robert Smith is a hell of a lot worse off than he would have been had he just let these stories fly past him. 
as we often see on Twitter, Jack, the um, the uh, fucked around and found out uh, graph. Um, he, he's got a great big X in the middle of that page there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. The Hippocratic oath for, for doctors says first do no harm. Uh, we almost need that one for defamation lawyers. For God's sake, don't make the situation even worse. You know? Yeah. He, look, what should he have done in the first instance, Jack? Would, would the, uh, my view is that he should, when these reports were first made by, by Nick and Chris um, <clears throat> uh, in in the nine newspapers, um, uh, that he should have just simply issued a statement denying them, uh, uh, refuting them, refuting the allegations, and uh, and left it at that. Yes. Well, 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 this is post the thing. First of all, he shouldn't have behaved. He shouldn't have done the things in Afghanistan that he did. Ah, yeah, well, but, there is that. Yeah, yeah. There is that. Um, uh, but um, but secondly, um, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, sometimes you just got to let these things go. Uh, you know you're going to have some skin off, um, but don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. I just wanted to say also, too, that Australia's military engagement in, in, in Afghanistan put great pressure on the SAS um, because we were sort of fighting a, um, uh, a, a fighting a war that almost didn't exist. We didn't want to put the 4th RAR or the 3rd RAR in combat in Afghanistan. So what we did, what our, what our, um, our government, our, pol- our political masters determined was the best course of action there was to um, make the SAS the really the only combatant unit in, um, in Afghanistan. The rest were largely observers. And that meant that these SAS guys were, were, were on permanent rotation in and out of Afghanistan. I mean, I think Robert Smith had two, possibly three um, uh, um, uh, uh, tours of duty, um, but a, a number of uh, other SAS members had, had had many more. So they placed great um, pressure on the SAS are, uh, and I believe the ADF and their political masters should have known that there were problems in 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 that time, and they need to explain themselves too. What it looks like to me is I mean, the SAS's job, as as I understand it, is to go in, um, get something done, and get out, um, uh, and that's a different role altogether to being yeah. there um, all the time. And I think that was a mistake. I think it was a mistake, and I think the ADF need to explain themselves to the Australian public, and and I think our political masters at the time, which include Julia Gillard and Tony Abbott, uh, who were constantly sounding off about our brave troops and uh, getting on and getting the job done in Afghanistan when they really were placed under extraordinary pressure, and I'm not just talking about Ben Robert Smith, I'm talking about the SASR uh, overall. Yeah, uh, they were also pretty keen on on uh, on whacking on the camo and the uh, and the body armor and going around and have a photo taken. Yeah, so, so. yeah. There's uh, there's there's plenty there to explain. Yeah, this, right. is not, this is not a partisan issue. I think they were all involved in doing that. Indeed, they were. You know, and handing out. I mean, I think there were four VCs, one posthumously uh, handed out in Afghanistan, and and um, and that. Largely speaks of a of a long uh, conflict, um, uh, Australia's longest actually, um, and uh, but it also speaks it uh, speaks of the fact that perhaps our ADF and perhaps their political masters were keen to paint a different story as to actually what was going on. 
Yep. Speaking of which, Jack, the Lamman inquiry, we saw Heidi Yates give evidence last week. How did she get on? She went okay, but no better than okay. Um, um, Heidi Yates, just to explain to our listeners, is... is the I think she's the um, uh, Victims of Crime Commissioner. Her title is in the ACT. Um, yeah, but she also holds another position, doesn't she? Within, I think she within, does. Yeah, um, which, which, and they which, seem to be sort of at odds with each other. Anyway, she, too. as you say, she yeah. gave she gave uh, she gave decent uh, evidence, and then of course Bruce Learman did an interview on Channel Seven on Sunday night. You wouldn't have seen it. I didn't bother. I, I have have, s- have seen nearly all of it. Yes. Yeah, well, I've seen, you know, we've all sort of caught up with the extracts and, and things like that. But why would he do such a thing, Jack? Um, uh, I th- well, uh, we spoke about this last week and I couldn't see a good reason to do it. Um, he certainly came out of it better than I thought he would. Um, I don't think anyone looks good in any of this. Nobody involved in this looks has come out of this well. Um, but he came out of a little better than... Um, before um, it's pretty good television. Um, they ran a. They had access to um, some real assets in making the program. They got a, a lot hold of a lot of the CCTV uh, footage from the various bars that Lehman and Higgins were in um, during the course of the evening, and from Parliament House, and they got access to a long session involving. Um, uh, Lisa Wilkinson, um, David Shiraz, the boyfriend of, of, uh, of Higgins, Higgins. Yes. Uh, and Higgins herself and um, the producer of Wilkinson's program on part of the program on the project. About five hours of footage of that, um, and that alone was worth doing the program. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this, uh, that Lisa Wilkinson and her husband, Peter Fitzsimmons, come, come out on this looking very, very poor. I did see Janet Brexton today has actually suggested that uh, Lisa Wilkinson should uh, hand the, the Logie back uh, that she won and then made a speech, which was, uh, made a speech to those assembled. I think they were up on the Goldie at the time during the pandemic uh, for the for all the Logie, you know, all the Logie audience. Made the speech where she basically had, it caused a, a delay in the trial itself. Six months delay in the trial. Um, frankly, I don't care who's got the Logie, who <laughs> doesn't. Uh, I don't think it matters uh, a whole lot. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So, so the, I thought you were going a bit hard this morning, uh, Janet. Um, uh, the piece on the weekend, though, um, uh, was an excellent piece. Um, uh, and uh, included in that was a moment where uh, Lisa, Lisa Wilkinson, uh, referring to Linda Reynolds, says, um, I'm a great believer in people's time will come. Um, there and, seemed and, to be, and this was mentioned and, again. And just, in- just before you go back, there was an immediate response on Twitter to this was, um, uh, I think her time just came. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, uh, yeah, look, it seems that um, I've had a, a little bit to do with Linda Reynolds, and I, um, uh, I, I don't have a don't have a, 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 a flea in my ear about about her, but I, I, I thought she was a 
pretty low voltage uh, sort of politician uh, when I had a little bit to do with that, a little bit of a stash with her on Sky News about um, uh, data retention, uh, metadata retention specifically when there was legislation and she poo-pooed all my concerns which is, which have uh, <laughs> just, you know, basically become realised. Um, so I thought she's a pretty low altitude flyer but it's clear that Wilkinson had... Um, had a bit of an issue with Linda Reynolds going forward, and and uh, and she seemed some personal to, animus. I think is the term. Yeah, some use, personal animus there. Um, uh, and of course, and this led to the uh, intervention of Mike Carlton on Twitter. Jack, I don't know. I don't see Mike Carlton's uh, tweets. You do. He, he, I, he, he, he doesn't allow it. I he doesn't allow it. I believe. No, he does not. He's a free speech. Uh, he's a free speech advocate until it uh, comes to uh, until it comes to himself, and then uh, he really wants to play to his own audience. Yeah. Um, what was his tweet? I'm just amazed. He said, "Astounded by Seven's PR commercial for Bruce Learman and its vicious hat job hatchet job on Lisa Wilkinson and Peter Fitz. There were holes in that interview you could drive a truck through." Um. My reaction to that was just um, of amusement. Firstly, there are holes in everyone's side of the story in the Lerman Higgins thing that you could drive a truck through. Yeah, there yeah. are big, there are big gaps, and they those haven't gone away because of this interview because of the Channel Seven program. Um, now, um, but, but but the real problem was you you watch that program and you come out thinking, well, you ask you come out asking yourself the question. Um, uh, uh, are Lisa Wilkinson and Peter Fitzsimons barrackers or reporters or journalists or whatever? You know, well, Peter Fitz is a that. columnist, so he's a, he's allowed to be a barracker. And I just want to explain the difference to listeners. I wouldn't describe Peter Fitz as a journalist, and I'm not. Uh, that's not a sort of backhanded uh, insult. He is a columnist. So he's entitled to express opinion. That's the whole Ooh. point of it. He's not a journalist. Now, Lisa Wilkinson is a journalist. And that's where the difference lies, I think, yeah. that she became an advocate rather than a journalist. And sometimes that's a really difficult thing to avoid when you're a journalist. I mean, um, when I uh, took up the, the cudgels for Dennis Ryan, I very quickly and unapologetically became an advocate for Dennis Ryan. Um <clears throat> And, um, which, is, which is why you wrote a book about it rather than um, uh, had the reporting on the front page of The Australian. Uh, yeah, look, we didn't actually uh, put our heads together and talk about media strategies and things like that. But um, <clears throat> but sometimes it's very difficult to avoid that advocacy element in as a journalist. Um, I, I just think that pretty much everyone involved in this has come out pretty poorly. I, I, I don't know where this leaves Brittany... Higgins, what I'm saying is that interviews of this kind on Channel 7, I don't know if it rated or not, um, <laughs> it presumably did rate quite well. I, I just think everyone needs to just move on there. I, there there's really nothing to be achieved. But, of course, um, um, uh, Lehrman is suing uh, Channel 10, uh, Lisa Wilkinson, um, I think the project and uh, Channel Ten, and also the ABC over its coverage of um, a um, a national press club address uh, a, a given by Brittany Higgins 
and um, and uh, the uh, the Australian of the Year at the time, whose name I'm just Grace just, Grace Tame, Grace and introduced Tame. introduced by Lee, uh, uh, Laura Tingle, Tingle um, uh, yeah. Laura Tingle from the ABC. But that's standard stuff. I mean, the ABC has. I don't know whether there's a contractual arrangement, but whatever National Press Club addresses on, they cover it. Mm. I, do, I just don't understand why that would pose any sort of legal avenue for redress by uh, Learman. Uh, I, I hope um, the Learman camp are wise enough to reconsider the current actions. Um, Mike Carlton, by the way, um, he's found the real culprit in all of this. I, I saw his Twitter feed this morning, the one that you're not allowed to look at. <laughs> um, um uh, and he's found the, the the real culprits in this. It's News Corp. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Um, yes. Uh, um, despite the fact that News Corp ran this story pretty hard, and Samantha Maiden and uh, yes, you <laughs> were subject to litigation that has since been dropped by Lehman. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. There's not a lot of sense in the babbling of Mike Carlton. Uh, online, um, no, no wonder he won't let you read his tweets. You know, you're going to be that critical of him. You know, he's very sensitive. You know, Mike. Uh, should we worry emotion? Should we worry about the emotional state of Western Australians, Jack? Uh, have they just sort of woken up? And Dad's gone down to uh, buy a packet of cigarettes at the shop and just hasn't come back. Um, you know, state dad, Mark McGowan, all gone, uh, and uh, and Western Australians are pretty bereft. Yeah, can we organise statewide counselling? <laughs> I've just got to, well, we talked about this on the conditional release program, Jack. He won in his own seat of Rockingham, which is uh, in Perth South, um, uh, he won 82.8% of the primary vote. Um, now, I can't remember a higher. I, I, I don't, there may well have been in Australian political history. Um, I should ask some of my sophologist mates, but 82.8% of the primary vote in his own seat in, what was it, 2021? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The only two only two people I think would be dissatisfied with that sort of vote would be King John Hill and Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein got into the 90s a couple of times because yeah. that, that's that's where those figures are. They, they, they're in, but they were genuine. So what uh, rather wonderful piece by Paul Garvey, um, in the Australian last week, Jack, about uh, the uh, the transition. And it wasn't a smooth transition at all. Firstly, McGowan's announcement came from nowhere. I mean, he really did have uh, every opportunity to run another term and probably two without having to worry too much about it, uh, any uh, shock election results. Um uh, so everything was there for him. So when he made that announcement, it was a bit of a shock. There were a lot of factional plays, Jack, within the Labor Party that week uh, that saw the Transport Minister. She actually stood outside the uh, United Workers' Union offices and declared herself anointed. Uh, uh, only de- Declared herself anointed by the United Workers' Union. <laughs> That was a problem. That was and a that terrible look. Um, and that seemed to be it. Uh, the missos, as they call them in Western Australia, the UWU, uh, had had well, had well, 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 they're an offshoot. Patted her on the head. 
They're an offshoot, and Paul didn't explain this in the article, unfortunately, but um, the, the UWU are an offshoot of the old miscellaneous workers union, yeah. uh, which was a nationwide, um, you know, and, and, and the miscellaneous workers union has always been known as the missiles, miss- you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, Garvey's piece is excellent because it sort of laid out just exactly what had happened, that, that, that the transport minister had decided she'd been given the job, uh, the uh, uh, deputy uh, premier cook, Roger Cook, I think it is, uh, decided uh, that wasn't going to be the way it was at all. He sought the support and received the support from the AMWU uh, and from many of his caucus colleagues who looked at uh, at uh, uh, Sanderson, the the, uh, the transport minister standing outside the Miso's, Miso building in Perth and declaring herself appointed, thinking, hang on, I haven't voted for any... <laughs> I haven't voted yet. So uh, Roger got the job. So his, his big job now is to bed all that down because uh, uh, Sanderson will see herself as being betrayed and uh, it's going to be a very interesting um, cabinet announcement. Uh, there'll be uh, – he will he's well within his rights to, within, with factional support to, to choose his own ministry. Uh, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see how how easily he can bed that down. I mean, it is sort of trouble in electoral paradise. They really don't have an opposition to worry about, and and it is one of those cases where you don't have an opposition to worry about, Jack. Sometimes the wheels fall off because you can't control what's going on in your own party room. Yeah, it reminds me of um, uh, of going to the first ever West Coast uh, Eagles game in uh, Melbourne. They played Essendon at Windy Hill. Um, and a mate and I persuaded ourselves for some obscure reason we'd go out there and watch it. And we're standing on the hill up near the windsock there, um, and the Essendon fans in that area, uh, ooh, they were a bit rugged in those days. Um, and by quarter time, um, they, the, the fights were breaking out, and because there were no West Coast fans to fight, they were fighting each other. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly <laughs> what we're talking about here. So potential problems looming there for... Uh, for WA Labor, but it must be said they are in a nice problems to have category at this stage uh, with just two members uh, of the Western Australian Liberal Party elected and, and, to the and, lower house. And the new Premier's solution is quite relatively straightforward. Um, what you've got to do is get enough of the factional players in cosy jobs, then self-interest will take over. There you go. Um, I see Peter Van Onselen. PVO columnist at the Australian has is being sued by Channel Ten Jack and where he was working till just recently. It's until recently, I believe he's overseas at the moment, and this is headed to court because Channel Ten are alleging that he breached a non disparagement clause uh, when he wrote about Channel Ten's um, uh, and and its um, and its streamer uh, Paramount Plus. It's owner. Um, um, it's owned and, by the US streaming service, isn't it? You know? Yeah, well, CBS basically, yeah. Uh, and and Paramount Plus is the streamer now. Is the stream which is which has had difficulties getting into a fairly tight marketplace. They were slow in, and I actually looked. To be fair, I actually looked at Paramount Plus, and then I've just got them all really. So I said, oh, one more can't hurt. And uh, and then I looked at their back, at their backlist and it wasn't great, so I, I gave it the flick. So I don't, I don't have Paramount Plus, but uh, I, I believe the the allegation is that uh, Peter Van Onselen disparaged uh, the streamer. Uh, well, made comments about its uh, market share and, and and the possibility of in, increasing its market share. I thought these non 
disparagement clauses went went worth the paper they were written on, Jack. Yeah, I don't think this will go very far myself. I, I signed one once, and I'm happy to disparage the bloke I signed it about. <laughs> <laughs> he's, de- he's deceased now, so I can say whatever I like. But that's what, um, that's what yeah. generally happens. Yeah, well, I'd had a bit of a Barney with a bloke and, and lawyers at sort of ten paces for a little while there, and um, and uh, I ended up uh, signing a non-disparagement clause. Uh, he disparaged me, and I disparaged him, so we signed a non-disparagement clause. We didn't breach it, but I always thought those things were just junk, Jack. Yeah, um, if you're paying all this money for streaming services. I'll have to introduce you to the Hong Kong equivalent of it. No, quite no, 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 Jack. Quite a few God, of my mates a- have what, what we call the dirty tie box, which will give, gives you everything from all around the world for very little money. Do I need to lecture a lawyer on intellectual property, Jack? <laughs> Apparently it's a, it's a chap sitting in Thailand somewhere in a couple of hotel rooms that are chock full of servers. Uh, uh, Providing this service. This is not the way to look after your creative people, Jack. Uh, if everyone did that, uh, mm. no one, uh, no one would do any writing. We're going to get on with writers shortly. This, this is this is Asia, mate. You know, and, uh, Kathleen Folbig, Jack, an, an extraordinary business, uh, spent uh, twenty years in prison, convicted of the death of her four children, um, and. Uh, uh, and was described in various books. I went and had a look at some of these books, Jack, after she was convicted, described as Australia's worst female serial killer, uh, these sorts of things. And, of course, yesterday, uh, New South Wales Attorney General Michael Daly uh, announced that uh, Miss Fulbig would be freed from prison without delay, um, in fact, she's out, out of prison now. She was released at eleven she o'clock, was, just after she, eleven o'clock yesterday. She yesterday. was out before the she was out before the announcement, as I understand. Yeah, look, it must be said that the the previous Attorney General in New South Wales, uh, Mark Speakman, had uh, launched an inquiry into the in, 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 into the uh, the convictions. So she so that can, she's been exonerated and pardoned. Now, just yeah. uh, the first obvious question is: Could she now sue the state of New South Wales? I think she probably can. Um, if you remember back to the time that, you know, 20 years ago when she was convicted, um, there was a, an unseemly media pile there on. There was. Uh, um, and um, I think it's if I, I, that, the kindest way I could put it, mm. um, almost a pitchfork mob. Um, and I'm always troubled when that happens, whether it's Lindy Chamberlain, um, uh, Kathleen Folbig, or even indeed Bruce Lerman. I, I don't like that. And it, it, and it's a, it puts the justice system under a lot of pressure, and it's where the justice system most often gets it wrong. Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit, but it's a really good point that you make. I mean, there's a true crime community, and, and we've, we've sort of looked at this through the conditional release program and where it gets things terribly wrong. Now, on the basis of convictions, uh, writers, true crime writers, are entitled to sit down and determine, you know, basically quote from the judgment, uh, talk about uh, evidence received at court, all this sort of stuff. Um, But there was a rush to judgment here. Much of the evidence that put her away was either forensic, which we'll deal deal with in a minute, uh, or came from her husband that the marriage had broken up after the death of their four children. uh, Understandably. Uh, absolutely understandably, extraordinary pressure. 
and, um, and and her husband came across a diary that she had written where she, full of a mother's guilt, had sort of um, uh, indicated that she she was responsible, um, but it was really an expression of guilt. Uh, and a sort of an irrational expression of guilt, but it was misconstrued by police investigators and then later used in court against her. And, um, and misconstrued by the media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, straight off. And and again, when we look at this, a long list of true crime books written uh, written about Folbig uh, that uh, today would be uh, should be viewed with embarrassment by the authors. Um, the forensic evidence that we talk about, um, it was a failure of, of forensic evidence. And uh, she was very lucky, was uh, Kathleen Folbig, because she had a number of very close friends who advocated and agitated on her behalf. And it got through to, um, um, uh, uh, well, there was a book written uh, by a friend of hers um, that, highlighted some of those forensic uh, uh, medical failures and that led to the intervention of uh, uh, the, the rather wonderfully named Professor Stephen Cordner from the Melbourne Cordner family. Uh, there are a number in Sydney as well um, have been high achievers uh, in sport and uh, in science for a very long time, some of, them, some of them in the law as well. So Stephen Cordner, who was then head of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, uh, conducted a review of the evidence, came up with a 100-page report, the longest he'd ever written in his career, uh, and was critical of the path that led to Folberg's conviction, referring to a homicide hypothesis which, in fact, has little forensic pathology content. Then he, in turn, received the support of a um, 100 or more scientists, including Australian Nobel laureates immunologist Pete Doherty, Molecular biologist Elizabeth Blackburn, and they signed a petition, and that in and that in turn led to um, the Speakman review, uh, and uh, and ultimately the um, the exoneration and the pardon for uh, for Ms. Folbig. Yeah, um, the parallels with the Lindy Chamberlain case are almost uncanny. Um, that on close examination, the forensic evidence kind of fell apart. There was nothing. There was no there. Nothing there. there. Two of um, her children. I think one died of myocarditis. Uh, another of a heart condition. Two others had a uh, a genetic. Predisposition for SIDS that had not been um, a sudden sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, none of them, of course, were suffocated. There was no forensic evidence to support that, Jack. Mm. Uh, 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 that she had suffocated her four children. So she's out, and I dare say, uh, the state of New South Wales will be cutting her a check at a fairly uh. substantial one fairly soon. A very large one. If you want to see how this can go wrong, can I recommend a book, um, uh, the John Bryson book on the um, on the Lindy Chamberlain thing? Evil Angels. Um, Evil Angels. Don't worry about the movie with Meryl Streep proving that she can't do an Aussie accent. No, no, um, she was uh, very good. Uh, read the read the book, um, which gives you uh, John Bryson was a, um, a sort of retired Melbourne lawyer I knew from around the Carlton area. Uh, lovely fella, um, but he captures in the book rather than the movie, he captures just how these things go wrong, how you get a groundswell of opinion in a media pile on and it makes justice very hard to administer. Yeah, I think it's a real indictment on 
a lot of our true crime writers um, uh, and uh, listeners just have a look at, uh, at some of the stuff that's been written about Folbig going back 20 years and you'll find that it is so horribly wrong. And that's a real that's a real problem. That's a real problem. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll leave Australia for now and move on to the United Kingdom, Jack, where we now have a free trade agreement with the UK. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, Jack. We'll be eating penguins. They'll be eating Tim Tams. And, uh, you know, and, and, and everyone will prosper. Except I think the Australian media, again, uh, seem to be sort of sniffing at this uh, in a way and indeed the UK media, in a way to say that uh, this is a very one-sided deal and we're doing beautifully out of it. But it's not quite as simple as that, Jack. No, Carl Stefanovic was um, was leading the things. Um, um, uh, he got it absolutely spectacularly wrong, talking about, gee, how well the Australian Prime Minister and the High Commissioner had done getting this deal done because we don't import anything from the UK um, and it's all our stuff going the other way. And that's completely asked Well, there is a long list here. Um, UK, half a billion pounds in pharmacology, uh, almost uh, or f- well, 400 million pounds in cars, uh, 340 million in manufacturing, often precision engineered manufacturing. Uh, booze, 250 million pounds in booze. Two billion in business services, two point five billion pounds in financial services. This is this is really going to the strength of the, the UK con- economy. Yes. This is the expression of it, and a billion in telecoms and digital. So it's not as if, you know, I mean, I, I think the sneering from uh, Andrew Neil and Carl Stefanovic was based on this idea that uh, that we may not want um, UK beef. Um, because Australian beef is better. Yeah, well, they actually don't export. They don't export food hardly at all. Hardly and, at all. And, and, Andrew Neil wasn't making a mistake. Andrew Neil was pointing out, Carl. Oh, was he? Stephen, I do apologise, to Andrew Neil. I don't watch the Brecky shows, mate. I've got enough pain in my life as it is. Um, but uh, they got things heavily wrong. Now um, this is. Uh, and, and, and you're correct in pointing out those figures give you a, a, a picture of what the UK economy is about. It's about business and financial services and, and telecoms, yeah. tech and tech. They're very good at tech stuff. Um, uh, they, they don't export food. Um, they import most of their food. Um, so, yeah. So um, it's it's an example, I think, of the kind of provincial nature of a fair bit of Australian um, um, media coverage. You know. It's um, not, in the, not in the New York Times, it hasn't happened, yeah? Um, yes. Look, I've I just got something here from uh, economist and trade expert, uh, herself English. Um, uh, we'd better get that out there. But this is uh, uh, on, the, on the FTA. Australia has dropped all tariffs and quotas on all UK goods with the exception of some steel coils and pipes and some UK cheeses. Both will need to wait for five years and six years, respectively, before Australians can import them completely tariff-free. But unlike Australia, the UK is retaining its tariffs, quotas and PSS on Australian food for many years. Beef, 15 years. Sheep meat, 15 years. Dairy products, five. Wheat, five. Barley, five. Sugar, eight. Fruit and veg, four to eight. Uh, And that's not too bad for uh, UK farmers because... 
a lot. Some of the some of the actually UK journalism was saying that Boris Johnson got sliced up a treat by Scott Morrison, which seems improbable. It seemed improbable at the time, um, and that uh, he'd basically jo- Johnson had, had, had betrayed UK farmers, particularly beef farmers. But on this, beef fifteen years, Jack. Uh, yeah. As you said, the, and this is this is a getting uh, getting back to uh, uh, Catherine McBride. Uh, the UK is not a large exporter of agricultural products, as you say. It is a large importer. UK cheese exports made up only zero point one seven of total UK exports, um, but UK made uh, whiskey and gin just had Australia's five percent tariff removed from their price. Um, yeah. It is illegal to import or sell goods in the UK that do not meet UK standards, and that includes um, uh, uh, basically uh, uh, hormone uh, hormones in beef, Jack, which is I, – I went looking for the rate of it, but it comes down to individual farmers and understanding their markets, but uh, it is pretty widespread in, in our agricultural system, particularly around beef. Yeah, the, the, the two um, figures that stood out for me in all of this, uh, they're in um, British pounds, but foreign direct investment from the UK and Australia was £41 billion um, and foreign direct investment in the UK from Australia was £16 billion. They are big numbers. We are closely entwined economy, at least financially and, and, uh, and, uh, and investment-wise. Yes, indeed. All right. Um, now, we did uh, indicate to listeners last week uh, that we, uh, we're going to continue on with a sort of OECD analysis of, of where every country in that group um, uh, sits in terms of their energy requirements. Um, we'll get to Australia towards the end of this analysis, but today we have just Canada and uh, Mexico. And Canada, Jack, has one of the cleanest electricity systems in the world, largely led by hydropower with over 83% of production from non-emitting sources, and it aims to increase that by 90% by 2030. Um, that's that's because they're, they're kind of a large Tasmania. Well, <laughs> I think there are more lakes there in Canada than there are anywhere else on Earth. Yeah, there are. Um, <clears throat> combined, uh, I should say. Um, uh um, so we've got in the in the in the mix here that they are very very fortunate because they've got sixty percent of their electricity generate generation six hundred and thirty two point two terawatts terawatt hours sixty um, percent generated by hydro. Uh, then they've got uh, I think uh, what have we got there? Oh, the wind is only wind and wind and solar make up very very small amounts of it. Um, they do have nuclear power contributing about 15% of their electricity uh, and uh, wind wind at five, coal and coke at, at 7%. Um, so that they would be able to hit net zero easily. Yeah, very, they're very also, easily. they have some nuclear in part because they're a uranium-producing company as well. They are indeed. Um, so um, then we get to Mexico, Jack, which is completely different. Now, Mexico is one of perhaps the developing nations in the OECD. They have one nuclear power plant, um, uh, which contributes, I think, uh, 2 or 3% into their electricity grid, no more. 
Um, and uh, Mexico is, it must be said, I didn't know this, by the way, and so I'm learning all the time going through this analysis. Mexico is the 11th largest supplier of oil to the world. Did not know that. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's, um, uh, its electricity generation has a heavy oil base, heavy fossil fuels base, Coal, not significant, um, steady at about 5%. Nuclear, steady at, I think I said 2 or 3 but it's 4%. Natural gas, uh, rising from 20% in 1990 to 35% now, but oil making up most of that. Uh, most of that in terms of, ge- of terms of electricity generation. There's a slight growth in the renewables, solar, wind and biofuel sector, uh, but it makes up less than 10% of electricity generation combined. And when I went to the climate analysis website, Jack, it said, Naughty Mexico, Naughty Mexico, get your shit together that they are well on track to missing any sort of targets by 2030 and indeed by 2050. So there you go, Jack. Yep. We'll keep that going next week. I haven't decided which countries we'll look at, but they've got to be OECD. And just to give people an idea of where energy is coming from around the world and particularly in that OECD grouping. And Jack, you we talked about succession and how uh, pretty much everyone was watching it Um uh, you, you you missed out on its delights. I, I think I made the point that I thought Series 2 is where it should have ended and Series 3 was a bit contrived. Um, that's um, that's because I re, I resist having the dirty tyre box because I'm, I'm a defender of... Um, uh, there you go, intellectual property. property. There you go. About time you came out in uh, support of that. Um, you, you've highlighted something here that, that they had... That rather surprised me, i got to say. Well, it doesn't surprise me so much. It's it, it, it's it's basically there are I think you know, a, a basically a Melbourne Cup field of writers in that writers' room, and the, and the head writer was Jesse Armstrong. That's Jesse without an eye. That's Jesse Armstrong, who listeners may know from the BBC series, The Peep Show, uh, which was a wonderful comedy and wonderful, wonderful, wonderful comedy. And you can see Jesse Armstrong has that. Uh, Ability to, to you know just to, to create really snappy, witty dialogue as they went through. I thought that was what season three was all about: getting the, getting well three of the four siblings together in a room somewhere around the world so they could smart ass each other. That seemed to be the main point of series three. Um, why are there so many writers there, Jack? Is that what well, you're asking? That's why I asked the question. You're the you're the you're our TV man. One. The budget on uh, the budget on on succession is uh, it would have been in the in the tens of millions. So one, you can afford it, and two, um, it's always nice to have. A, I mean, writers' rooms can be can be clunky and a bit um, um, uh, difficult to, to wade your way through, provided you've got someone at the top who's really strong. Then you just get just more more ideas, and a lot of them just will never be seen and some of them won't, the, the scenes themselves will never be shot or they will be but they'll end up on the uh, on the cutting room floor so yeah 20 odd writers contributed to succession um, but Jesse Armstrong um, uh, has, has come out uh, as the uh, clubhouse leader uh, and a very strong resume in just very clever 
uh, very clever. Is, is, is this why there's dialogue. always the debates over who wrote Shakespeare's plays that, in fact, Will had a writer's room back there in, uh, in, uh, in Stratford? You can, you can bet your bottom dollar that all of those writers have signed uh, contracts saying that the intellectual property uh, belongs not to Jesse Armstrong, by the way, it will be, it will belong to HBO essentially, and a number of production companies linked to them uh, that have developed uh, this production, and nobody else. Which leads us, Jack, to the US Writers Guild strike, uh, and we it's gone on now for more than a month and seems to be intractable, and and the basis these are, of these it are is periodic, aren't they? Well, yes. Yeah, so look, it's not. It's not the. There was a major strike, and I'm going to go back about 15 years, yeah. and I, I know this because a couple of sitcoms that I used to watch had their series truncated around that time yeah. because um, uh, no one would cross the picket line. It would seem that's the that's the way. But this is a new thing, Jack, and I'm, I'm quoting here from new scientists rather than media, rather than perhaps uh, accepted media who may have. Uh, other irons in the fire, um, but the the issue is essentially one. Well, it's one of payment, one of uh, you know Hollywood. Hollywood producers, believe it or not, are crying poor, Jack, and they're saying that writers should be doing more for less. But then they're also saying that uh, writers may well be replaced by AI, and, and AI, AI generated screenplays. Uh, that are le- then left to, to uh, passed on to uh, to a small group of writers to amend, and that's that 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 is very real. Uh, we basically need, but I think there's one thing to talk talk about with AI. So this strike is going on, and and it looks like it will involve other uh, creative people coming on to the picket line uh, in the United States, the Screenwriters Guild, etc. But, Jack, AI is, is a major problem. Might I suggest one very easy initial solution to AI, that anything written by AI and made public, so it could be a letter from your gas company, it could be a real estate uh, blurb on a property, all the way to a screenplay or indeed a, a book or a newspaper report, where that has been generated by AI, then it should be designated as being generated by AI. Does that sound so, fair to you? So AI should get writer's credits here, right? No, no, no. It sh- it, it, there should be an acknowledgement by the publisher whether it's, a, as I say, a business letter or whether it's a, a real estate blurb or whether it's a, a book or a film or whatever it is, that it should be immediately identifiable as having been generated by AI. Legal advice? Well, I, I, I just think that's one of the protocols. Otherwise, people, I mean, look, we have seen this already. We saw this with um, CNET. Uh, the uh, technology publisher who were publishing a lot of stuff under AI without acknowledging it. They were actually calling it staff credits, uh, giving it, giving credits to staff, but it wasn't staff at all. And I think that's the first step. That's what I would like to see is the first step in not overcoming AI. Part of, it's, part of it is you have to accept that this thing is happening whether you like it or not, but also that publishers, regardless of their status and regardless of what they're, what they're publishing, where they publish AI-generated content, it should be labelled as such. Yeah, I think that's unenforceable. Mm, I think this needs to be dealt with, Jack. 
really, I mean, I, I, you know, in terms of how we reform this, I don't know, but we're talking about the loss of 40% of, of, of labour around the world. Um, where AI general anyone who basically works on a keyboard for a living can be replaced by AI. Yeah. Um, so we do. Governments need to deal with this. They can't just sit around and let big tech. Big tech are going. Can you please help us? We need. We need some sort of parameters established, legal parameters established here. And governments going. Hey, look, you know, blokes in government are going. Oh, I don't even know how to use my smartphone. Yeah. Um, so what good am I? Um, but we need to deal with this before it becomes a huge problem, and we start talking yeah. like Elon Musk about about uh, people receiving uh, receiving a, a livable income for not doing anything because everyone's 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 out of work. Mm. All right, we better move on. Mike Pence is in the race, Jack. Uh, Mike Pence in the United States put his hand up today, just a couple of hours ago. You sort of wonder why. You gotta have to wonder why. Um, you have to wonder why. I think his polling was in the fractions, wasn't it? Last week, um, um, uh, he about was three percent or something terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was he's behind Nikki Haley. Yeah, well, Nikki Haley's probably probably the well, she's third in the line of betting. Um, but, but, but and she big, Mike, well, big gay Mike is out is out now out and proud now as a, uh, a candidate in the GOP primary primary race. I can see why Nikki Haley's doing it. Um, it gives her nationwide brand recognition, and she might end up a vice president, um, or at least a vice presidential candidate. Um, Mike Pence won't want to be a vice president again, or a vice presidential candidate. Um, uh, is he spoiling? Is he just going to play the spoiler role, Jack? Is he trying to spoil for spoil the Trumpster? Yeah, it could be. But, yeah, it's just, just hard to see the logic of why he's doing it. Stephen L. Miller, he popped off the uh, the armed guards and what have you for long enough to uh, to write in the – I think that's no, in the spec, wrong, you think? Wrong Stephen L. Miller. This bloke writes for um, uh, um, a number of newspapers in the U.S. Oh, I do apologise, Stephen mm. L. Miller, the other one. Um, and uh, he's gone on to say that uh, he thinks uh, Trump is kind of doomed. He's locked in the past. Is that, is that his... Is yeah, that his, yeah, this, this is from the American Spectator, the American version of Spectator. I thought that, uh, I thought that is... The, isn't, are you sure that's not the same? Anyway, all right, you, no. I'm sure you are. All right. Um, uh, the, the not, not the former advisor to Donald Trump. No, absolutely not. Okay, no. No, he was writing and commentating on the White House all through the time the other Stephen O. Miller was working there. Okay. Uh. Um, uh, But uh, he thinks that Trump is stuck in 2020 and that's not a winning move because the voters eventually are going to want to know about what – tell me about 2024. (laughs) It's just the whole thing about Trump, isn't it? You know, it's basically I want to see what happened four years ago by the time we get to the campaign. Mm. What happened four years ago is is his fixation. And and therefore, in the absence of an agenda for for 2025, 26, etc., people are likely to... Assume that his only motivation is revenge. Yes, and, and that will be a losing move. He's going he's up to, to succeed. I think Miller is right um, that Trump is going to have to pivot, as they put it in American politics, um, uh, to the uh, a twenty twenty four agenda. Yeah, exactly right. And, and 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 we've talked about this, and we say, well, well, how do you 
because his fixation on the big lie about his electoral win in 2020, he can't drop it. He can't walk it back. So he, he can't walk it back now. He's trying to. You actually see him say things like, um, um, well, I got the most votes uh, for any candidate, for any Republican candidate, which is true, absolutely true, um, but you didn't win. Um, yes, I, I just keep thinking of Billy Mackey Snedden. We didn't lose. We just didn't get enough votes to win. Yeah, but he's, he's, he's trying to walk it back, but he can't. Mm. Now, Jack Dorsey, Jack. He, 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 the former, <laughs> former CEO of Twitter, yes. That's right. And he said Robert Kennedy, Jr., that is, mm. not, uh, not one of the assassinated clan, but Robert Kennedy, Jr., can and will beat Trump and DeSantis. And he was immediately asked, he said this on Twitter, on his old platform, um, he was immediately asked, are you endorsing or predicting? And his response? Both. Ooh. Nate Silver, um, uh, the great American pundit, has come back and said, it's not that there isn't some audience for RFK Jr., but I don't think that audience, over, I don't think that audience overlaps very well with Democratic primary likely voters. Hmm. I would have thought so. Um, I cannot see this going. I cannot see RFK Jr.'s candidacy going beyond New Hampshire. Um, We can have have a little handshake bet over that. But what I'm saying is that his actress wife, Cheryl Hines, might be saying, have you been into my purse again if he gets, mm. if he gets past New Hampshire because he's going to need a lot of money and the people he's getting, he's getting his money from at the moment, I don't like handing over too much of a quid for no, for no, good, uh, for no good at all. Um, but I yeah, suppose... But, but it, there was it, a response to that which I thought was interesting and I'd forgotten what the figures were. Uh, pointing out that at this stage in 2015, um, Jeb Bush was leading the Republican presidential field with 22%. Um, Scott Walker, the former Wisconsin governor, had 17%. Marco Rubio had 14%. Ben Carson's had 11 And in 11th place, just behind Carly Fiorina, was Donald Trump. Yeah, that's June 2015, though. So he, he, when did he announce? I think he announced in November, didn't he, mm. uh, of that year. And, and so he probably wasn't on the wasn't on the ticket. Well, he, he definitely wasn't on the ticket, and he probably wasn't on the horizon. Um, but RFK is at the moment. He, he, mm. I'm, I'm actually surprised that RFK gets 16 percent. In polling, and I suggest that that may not be all Democrat voters. Yeah, well, the that. weekend talk shows were all over trying to explain how that's happened, and no one could come up with a reason. Yeah, the, week, it, the, the I mean, US it, weekend, US it, weekend panel. If show. it's likely primary voters for the Democrats, I can't see it being that high. I mean, it's possible, but it's more. If it's sixteen percent, it's more like I really don't like Joe Biden, and here's here's yes, here's right. some oh Kennedy. <laughs> I'll give him a tick. All right, moving on. Listeners' letters. Jack, we've got to deal with this. It's been on the agenda for a few weeks now. The base man, Ray, has dropped us a, a letter saying, and I'll just read this very briefly. We get quite long screes from Ray. But this is everything I said about the unnationals is coming true. Oh, and the looters, he means the liberals, only want to be in government when they can share the spoils. They prostitute each other to win the smell of leather on the front benches 
even though they hate each other's guts. I guess what Ray is saying there, Jack, is is the National Party cart pulling the Liberal Party horse? Um, well, you go back to the Fraser government in 1975, um, and I think the three most significant ministers in that cabinet were um, uh, Peter Nixon, Doug Anthony and Ian Sinclair. Yeah, very, very powerful in those days. I, look, I would... What we did see uh, in the uh, uh, the Turnbull government, for example, was that is that, uh, and in fact, the Morrison government, because he got rolled over, essentially rolled over, was that um, uh, the coalition came up with an energy policy, and then the Nats were given like two weeks to to basically muse over it and decide whether they were going to support it or not, and it really did look like the National Party was you know, in this very, very uh, important policy area was driving things. Could easily yeah, but, just but, say but no. They weren't, really. They were just given a take it or leave it. Um, those three ministers, by the way, the ones I mentioned, were, were all National Party ministers. Um, the, the coalition works best when you have um, a discreetly placed, powerful um, uh, National Party cabinet ministers or shadow ministers. Um, working together with Liberal colleagues. Got to have some talent, though, Jack, don't they? I mean, yep. David Little and, well, and they certainly had some talent. Uh, Nixon, Anthony and Sinclair were the yeah. three of the four or five most talented people in that cabin. What did Bill Hayden say of uh, Sinclair? <laughs> he would pluck the pennies from a dead man's eyes. And that was yeah. over some shenanigans with his father, with Sinclair's father's death. Um, who, was a, who was a funeral director, I think. Yeah, I think Bill had some uh, real fun there. Um, all right, um, uh, from listener Greg, and we've got a, got a letter there, Jack, and I know you've seen this one. He said, finished up the latest two Jacks tonight whilst knocking off some homework with a glass of red. Great as always. Uh, very nice of you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Greg. But uh, he said, re- regarding the F-16s, and we were talking about F-16 engagement uh, in in, uh, in the Ukraine a sphere of conflict. He said, here is a short podcast which I listened to on the drive home. Michael Kaufman appears to know his stuff and in this episode he touches on the F-16 issue. He said, thought you might enjoy it. Very, very good. Thank you, uh, Greg, and I did have a listen to it. This is the podcast called War on the Rocks and the episode in question uh, was with Michael Kaufman who's a sort of... Um, 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 a military um, military uh, policy analyst and and really knows his stuff. So I do recommend War on the Rocks, which looks at Ukraine, the Ukrainian invasion and and its mil- various military responses. Um, and and that one particular episode with Michael Kaufman, it, it's dry. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's a bit. It can be a bit dry. But if you really like a lot of data, a lot of information, then uh, have a look at the podcast War on the Rocks. EVs, Jack Rowan Atkinson doesn't like them. No. Well, well, no. He thinks he is in fact an EV driver and has been for a long time. Um, mm. He just thinks that we've lost direction with this. We're thinking that they can fix problems that they can't. And 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 basically is is talking about developing hydrogen, talking about synthetic fuels, talking about these other things that. Uh, uh, that we might be placing all our eggs, perhaps California, for example, might be placing all our eggs in that EV vehicle, in that EV basket, I should say. 
and ignoring emerging technologies. Specifically, he says that if lithium-ion battery is an imperfect device for electric cars, it is a complete non-starter for trucks because of the weight involved. Mm, well, yeah, there's... Now, uh, I wouldn't normally take advice from a comedian about anything. It's a bit like people who take their political advice from movie actors. Um, but Rowan Atkinson actually has degrees in electric, electrical and electronic engineering from the University of Newcastle and did a master's in Oxford in the same thing. He's a fairly bright boy. Uh, <laughs> but also, Jack, I think one of his perhaps more important um, public announcements, was really uh, talking about free speech and why it's important not to uh, silence people but to deal with them with yeah. your own forms of speech. And Rowan Atkinson made a very, very good uh, speech about this uh, some years ago now. Moving on to sports, Jack, here we are. We've got so much to get through. Just very briefly, the AFL has... Uh, shut down its independent inquiry into the Hawthorne uh, Football Club racist allegations. Um, Without making any findings whatsoever. Well, it couldn't because it, it didn't interview um, – it didn't interview or couldn't interview the protagonists. Well, it should have been shut down by Christmas yeah. or by Australia Day weekend at the latest. So now it'll go to the civil courts and – and uh, and that's basically where it is. But the AFL, I think, has made a statement about it. It continues to cause major problems at Hawthorne uh, at the moment um, <clears throat> with uh, resignations and uh, perhaps a, a, a loss of motivation within the club. Yeah. I'll tell you who comes out of it badly in my view. Bernard Quinn KC and his team uh, because they should have told the AFL before Christmas that they were unable to provide um, uh, meaningful findings because they couldn't provide the documentation and question uh, Bert, Fagan and Clarkson, uh, and they should have recommended it to be closed at least by Australia. Mm, all right. But in huge news, Jack, Ange Postacoglu, <laughs> the all-conquering coach of Celtics in Scotland, has been signed to Tottenham Hotspurs, Jack. He has. And just a reminder of Ange's record, he was a South Melbourne Hellers player where he played under the, one of the greats of uh, world football, Ferenc Puskas. Um, and um, uh, wherever Ange has gone, he's had success. Um, titles at Brisbane Roar, um, uh, success with the, um, uh, the Socceroos, a title at, um, at Yokohama, uh, in the J League, and now um, five trophies out of six possible for Celtic in two years. Yes, uh, the Frank Pushkas relationship is really good, and Ange spoke about this. Frank, Frank Pushkas was one of the great sort of um, uh, great coaches, but also a great, a, a great player. 80, 84 games for Hungary and 85 goals. Um, and then after he, he didn't go back to Hungary, he refused to return to Hungary after a tour with his club. Mm. And Hungary was behind the, the Iron Curtain at the stage. Right. Um, after a couple of years off and having whacked on a few pounds, um, he turned out for Real Madrid and uh, and was part of their all-conquering um, uh, European Cup winning titles. Um, I think they won, they won four um, uh, European Cup titles. Well, Ferenc Puskas says of 
uh, Ange Postacoglu. I was lucky because when he came to Australia, his English wasn't great, but he had coached Pathanikos to a European Cup final, so his Greek was decent, and I acted almost as an interpreter. Is that Ange on Pushkas or is that Pushkas? That's Ange on Pushkas. Ange on Pushkas. I used to pick him up from his house, says Ange, and drive him to training in my crappy old car, which I was embarrassed about. The pair achieved success together, lifting the NSL Cup in 1990 and winning the league a year later. Postacoglu's attacking approach may well have been shaped by his time under Puskas, who refused to ask his wingers to track back, much to his captain's frustration, and demanded positive and entertaining football. Jack, regardless of all of this lovely story and all of uh, Ange's uh, wonderful success, this is his biggest challenge uh, without doubt. Um, yep. This is Premier League, and nothing is bigger in world sport than Premier League. Um, and Spurs, Jack, have had a pretty unhappy history of late, um, and much will. Uh, I mean, the, the, the club is uh, in a, um, owned by a, a billionaire or perhaps a board, um, but then the CEO's been a. Spurs for a very long time too, and and he's considered to be part of the problem. I would have thought he'd be sort of starting to look for a job, but he seems to be the the CEO at, at Spurs seems to be able to wade his through, wade his way through a lot of crises and, and somehow come out on top. Um, well, Spurs, Spurs is a big club. I think they're um, in the top six or eight uh, in terms of. Um, of um, income, money recognition, whatever you want to put it in, in, in the Premier League. So they are a big club by world oh, huge standards. Club. Huge club. Um, um, and remember, before Christmas 2022, they were top three in the Premier League. Yeah, uh, but they finished eighth. And yes, that, I that know. means they're out of but Europe. So, so, <coughs> they so can they, play for so, local cups and so forth. But yeah. But, it, but, they, but they, they don't lack, they've got talent. You don't get to be number three in the Premier League halfway through the season without talent. They've been badly managed, um, and this is the biggest challenge Ange is going to face, but uh, I think it's a pretty good appointment. He's had success everywhere he goes, and they need someone to galvanise them. There are, uh, If you watch them play, which I do a bit because my son's a Spurs fan, um, they are um, uh, a bit of a rabble, a bit leaderless. They've got plenty of talent and can't put it together. Well, captain by Harry Kane, mate. Yep. What do you mean, leaderless? Harry Kane, it, it seems likely that the, the UK striker and captain uh, will set, will sign with Man United. Uh, and It's possible. Uh, very, very possible. It's getting into the probable character uh, uh, territory. Now, he's 29. There's probably their next best player is 30. Um, so um, it, it may not be a bad thing that Harry Kane moves on. I mean, it'll be it'll mean the first year will be pretty tight. Now, you know, just finding a, a striker of his capability is not going to be easy. I mean, Man United just screaming for a striker, so that's why they're all over Harry Kane at the moment. Yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for uh, for Ange, but we wish him well, and uh, and uh, we'll be watching. Tottenham Hotspurs uh, run out next year. I mean, you know, when we say the, the season's just ended, Jack, and it starts again in August. The um, uh, What's been interesting is that the there's been a repeat. When, when Ange was appointed to Celtic, there was um, a terrible outrage that this fellow who didn't even have a UEFA 
um, uh, stamp on his um, uh, coaching passport um, was appointed to Celtic. Um, and there were there were uh, petitions amongst Celtic fans to prevent the appointment yeah. happening, etc., etc. Et and this is this is playing out again. It's happening again with the Spurs thing. There's a, a, a no to Postacoglu um, uh, hashtag that's trending on Twitter, but like now, of, made up of Spurs fans saying, you know, we don't want this person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they've been helped out by a hell of a lot of Celtic fans who jumped on this uh, hashtag and said, look, you're right. He'd be a terrible appointment. You won't even be a, know how to pronounce his name. You should let him stay with us. Yeah. <laughs> this was the. This is the. Part of the problem, Jack. That in Premier League, if 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 the results aren't there, then all of a sudden it becomes deeply personal. The 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 attacks are personal. Mm. The chance from the stand demanding that you go. It's a really high pressure environment. But uh, but Ange Postecoglou has done everything. So it's done everything in the sport besides the Premier League. So it's really just a natural progression. Wish him wish him and, well with Spurs next. And, and, next and why season. not go? Why not go to one of the really big clubs with an absolute new, a new stadium, world class training facility, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and plenty of money to spend? Yeah. yeah, well, if the CEO lets lets you spend it, that, a, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the thing. Anyway, lots of lots of lots of potential pitfalls there, but we wish him well. In the NRL, uh, uh, Penrith half uh, Nathan Cleary is out for six weeks. We'll miss the next state of origin. I don't reckon that's a bad thing, Jack. I thought uh, the Blues were way too Penrith-centric when uh, they're attacking moves. Um, played to one side of the field almost all all night um, to uh, to uh, and clearly clearing the ball uh, out to um, uh, from the ruck uh, to uh, some Penrith players on the outside. I think that's actually a pretty good thing. I don't wish any harm to Nathan Cleary, but I think uh, it might straighten the Blues up a little bit if they have someone who's not from Penrith uh, at the play the ball. Um, and Jack, uh, Parramatta Eels, um, uh, they have their, their half, uh, one of their halves of their five eights, Dylan Brown, New Zealander actually, um, was uh, charged on Saturday night at the, at the Golden Sheath. In fact, the police arrived there and took him away there and he was charged with, uh, I think, five counts of sexual touching, Jack. This, this is down in Double Bay. Down at the Sheaf, yeah. I tell you, I saw, I saw some of the video of it. I know the Sheaf pretty well. Um, and, uh, and, and and maybe it's me getting old, but I looked at it and thought, gee, that looks like a terrible time in there. You know, dance, you know, disco dancing and all that sort of stuff. I mean, mm. I, I, I just couldn't bear it. it, um, but it, he's it, always, been... it always was the boozer of choice for all of the um, uh, teenage uh, public school, uh, you know, private school, it was, yeah. um, uh, um, uh, eastern suburbs kids. Yeah. If you wanted to have a serious drink, you walked around the corner of the oak. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, look, he's been charged with five counts of sexual touching. He was at uh, practice with the Earls yesterday, Jack. Uh, and uh, as we record this on the Tuesday, uh, the Eels will be required to name their squad, as uh, all NRL uh, teams have to do, by 4 o'clock on the Tuesday. Now, you can make some changes and what have you, but the question is, will they name him? And uh, it's almost certain that the NRL will step in and step in and, and stand him aside. Hmm. In the absence of a conviction, I mean, this has happened before historically with uh, with uh, the NRL, but in the absence of a conviction, is that fair? 
No. But it does happen. So it, it would seem like the uh, the league blokes have got uh, a higher standard to reach than, let's say, an AFL guy who was charged with a criminal offence mm. and uh, has his time before the courts when the AFL say they're, well, you know, presumption of innocence and all that sort of stuff. It's always deeply embarrassing for administrators, but I would believe that uh, that uh, Dylan Brown will probably be stood down by the NRL later today. We'll see and give you an update on that. And finally, Jack, uh, well, of course, uh, uh, we've, uh, we can't wait for the uh, Test Championship free-to-air on Channel 7. I think I, I might have said Channel 9 in one of my blabbings before. Of course, it's Channel 7. Free-to-air on the... Uh, the um, uh, the uh, in, uh, the Test Championship against India, which starts on Wednesday, the 8th of June, at, at around about 8 o'clock. Um, uh, and uh, and then the Ashes immediately thereafter, Jack. And I noticed uh, the the uh, England the England 11, we won't call them the Poms just yet. Let's wait and see how they get on first. Um, but uh, uh, what's I was going to say, Graham Leach is a good mate of mine. <laughs> but their their left arm speaker as a tweaker, Jack Leach has been um, uh, has is injured and uh, won't be playing any part in the Ashes. And I think that's a really big out for Australia. We will miss Josh Hazelwood, who's who's coming home with an injury as well. Um, what's the bigger out there, Jack? Oh, it's easily, it's Leach. Um, Hazelwood, uh, great ball of the years, good record in England, um, but for the last couple of years he's been picked and hardly ever plays. Uh, it's a bit like Jofra Archer being out for England. We, we knew he wasn't going to play. Um, uh, Jack Leach has been really, really big um, uh, for England over the last 13 matches of Basball. Um, he's been a, a really key ingredient in that, so he's a big loss. Yeah, the Basball stuff, if you make enough runs quickly enough, then – it's just tailor made for a spinner. Yes, who can throw the ball up? Who can who can take take some you know get get, get hit to the boundary and so and just keep challenging the batsman. So yep. that's why it sort of plays in their hands. And he's handy bowler. He was he's a frustrating bat and hard to get out and lower. Well, I think he was pretty, not pretty good tech. Pretty good technique. I saw him yeah, first time. Been, I saw he's been night watchman a few times now. Yeah, first time I saw him bat, he came in as a night watchman. Um, uh, come in first wicket down and. I was saying to him, we're watching in the pub with some mates. I said, who's this bloke? He, he's pretty sound. I said, he's a number 11. I said, oh, dear. He's got the, yeah, he had the, um, um, he, he's got the front foot defence sort of down yeah. pat and, and, and that sort of stuff. So he, he, no backswing and it's pretty hard, pretty pretty easy to keep the ball out unless it's doing question, a fair bit. Question is, do, do England bite the bullet and go with the young leg spinner? Um, who made his debut. He's played just the one test, made his debut in Karachi. Uh, wasn't quite 19 years of age, the youngest ever debutante for England. Um, uh, took seven for 135. Um, and I watched him bowl, and he's the goods. Um, he doesn't spin it. He's not a warn. He doesn't give it a big rip like warn. He doesn't spin it very far, but he spins it both ways um, and spins it just enough to get the edge. Um, Warney saw him bowl at the age of 12. Yes, lovely footage, yes. 12 in the nets at Lords. Um, it was his second year there at 11 years, 11 years of age. 12, but yeah, yeah. At 11 years of age, he, his first time there, he skittled Alistair Cook in the nets. Um, um, and the next year he came back and Warney said, you'll be playing first-class cricket at 15, I think. Um, 
it's a really tempting thing. He, he's, a, he's an attacking weapon. I think I, I, it, it will be wonderful to see whether England are prepared to bite the bullet and pick a 19-year-old in an Ashes series. But also a league spinner, Jack, with a preponderance of left-handed bats. Uh, and uh, that shouldn't discount him or dismiss him, but left-handers go okay against leggy, so just not doing yeah, a lot with the ball. He, but- but this bloke does he, – he does he, – he's like those um, some of those Pakistani off-spinners. He doesn't move it very far, but he moves it both ways. Um, and his debut, I mean, I'm sure it was on a turner um, in Karachi, but he was bowling at blokes who are pretty handy at playing spin. All right, just finally, Jack, it would seem that Scott Boland is the replacement for Hazelwood, but Michael Neeser, who's come he's into in the, the squad. squad, is over in England at the moment, bowling beautifully and <laughs> making a few runs, got 100 couple of weeks ago, uh, good bat. Really good uh, um, um, lower order bat is Michael Neeser. Um, who would be the who would be the choice? I think the Australians are thinking Bowler. Um, oh yeah, I think Bowler get picked first up. Uh, Neeser, but Neeser will be getting will, will probably get his. Given that they're playing, oh, he'll five definitely tests. bowl in the series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Given they're playing five tests and you know not quite in succession, yeah, there'll pretty be a close lot of turnover to the bowlers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'll he will get a bowl on the series at some stage. Yeah, can't wait, can't wait. Wednesday night, it all starts again. I feel like we've missed a lot of Test cricket, Jack. I thought it's just been that season, but we probably had a pretty ordinary summer with Test cricket here with South Africa and the West Indies. Uh, can't wait for what's coming our way. And uh, that that wraps the show up for the not day. Qu- not quite. No? Uh, what do you got? Uh, it's all about beer, uh, uh, extra little bit this week. Beer? Uh, yep. Um, uh the 4th of June um, uh, was the anniversary of a, a, um, a great marketing idea the Cleveland Indians had in 1974. They had a 10-cent beer day um, uh, in, a, in, a, max, in a, a game against the Texas Rangers, I think. Um, so I think the normal price of a beer in those days was about 70 cents, um, but it was offered at 10 cents a pop. Um, uh, for the uh, for the course of the game, and by the ninth inning, things were getting a little untidy. <laughs> <laughs> there were pitch invasions. Um, uh, there were players having to use their baseball bats to fight off the crowd. Um, uh, so, um, <laughs> and ditch the idea of and, the, and of the, the, uh, in the subsidised end, the re- beer. In the end, the referee forfeited the game uh, uh, for the Cleveland Indians and awarded it to the Texas Rangers. And I think that was the end of the 10-cent beer The 10-cent beer. Uh, we we and, mentioned that. And, and, and while we're on the subject of beer, um, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was um, uh, snapped at the weekend, um, uh, tipping back a beer while he was in Vietnam, and the Sky News people um, went kind of nuts about this. Oh, I don't normally get to watch Are they anti-beer? Years, I don't know whether they're anti-beer or they're upset because uh, – I think they were upset because Albo had said he'd be the one who would always be on duty. Um, I think he was just positioning himself against Scott Morrison. They can't have uh, a beer. During the election campaign. Um, so they were down on Albo for having a beer in Vietnam. So Sky oh, News yeah. guys – Grow up the new yeah new new Puritanism. We mentioned the Cordners before, and that did make me think of that wonderful moment where uh, the secretary of the MCC, a number of the Cordners were involved in the MCC, a very senior Melbourne Cricket Club, 
that, that uh, I, I think it was the secretary, and I can't think of his name, he's the, he was the bowler, um, Tess Bowler, came out with an odd-shaped esky and decided that after enough ructions in the uh, the MCG outer for long enough virtual riots going on there, they were deciding uh, to uh, restrict uh, <clears throat> spectators' access to alcohol to 16 cans per man per day. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and you're old enough, you're old enough, and, and I certainly am, to remember the young chaps struggling under the weight of their esky as they carried them down from the station. Blokes used to walk in with those plastic garbage bins full of ice and beer. That'll be yeah. it for the day. Yeah. And then yeah, it was reduced to a terrifying 16 cans. There, um, there, there, is a young, there is a young bloke who I, I knew slightly um, uh, who uh, ended up being a lawyer. Um, and I think he's now a judge in the state of Victoria. Um, but uh, uh, in his early law school days, perhaps his later school days and his early law school days, uh, somewhere around there, he earned the distinction of being removed from the ground at the MCG all five days of a Melbourne test. <laughs> He's done very well. Yes, it used to be uh, a wonderful day there. Um, uh, sun, sunburn and a powerful hangover to go on with. Thank you very much for your time today, Jack. And uh, I just want to say thank you to our listeners. Uh, we did enjoy bringing you listeners' contributions, feedback, etc. So keep it coming, please. Uh, drop uh, uh, me a line. Uh, my DMs are always open on Twitter. You can get hold of us at the Conditional Release Program at gmail.com. And Jack, uh, your uh, Jack at substack.com, something like uh, that? Hong Kong Jack at substack.com will find there me. There you go. So drop us a line if you can. We'd love bringing this to you and we will catch up with you next week. Thanks, listeners. See ya. Bye.